and welcome to episode 209 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and I have my co-host, Tony, with me here today. Uh, it's going to be a little upset and cranky because it's the third time that we're trying to record this. <laughs> Man, we have just been sucking at our intros. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the last time I, I said that, uh, you know, uh, I used... Thursday, the fact that it's Thursday here, you know, to, uh, to make it sound a little interesting, but, uh, but no. Uh, and now what? you decided to double down on it. I like it. <laughs> oh, I gotta live through, like, my, um, what do you call that? My, my, uh, damn it, what's the word? Uh, Googleplex. <laughs> Damn it. Um, my shame, my shame. (laughs) So much shame so far. So much shame. So what do we got this week? I was, I was going to say that this week actually has been kind of exciting in Hong Kong because, uh, we had our first major, well, so-called major typhoon. Uh, it was not actually really major. Um, winds actually went up really high, but, uh, in terms of like impact, didn't really feel it as much. Just uh, like for example, the Hong Kong Exchange had to stay closed till like about uh, till the afternoon of yesterday, so Wednesday my time. Yeah. It was funny because I, you know, I, I got a news alert that there was an earthquake in the Philippines near Manila, which Alice is staying near Manila. So I was like, you know, I text her, you know, and six o'clock she responds back. She goes, Oh yeah, it was that. You know, it was just. It's like a bigger, it's like 6 point something, 6.8. No, somebody died. Like, I was like, all right, cool. You guys are cool with it. Uh, yeah, no, no big deal, I guess. But yeah, so. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. The news, news is, uh, it, it's funny how sometimes it can be distorted. Not, not, it's not funny. I mean, it can be distorted all the time and it is. So like, uh, my parents were like, are you okay? We heard that it's T9 in Hong Kong. I'm like, well, yeah, it's raining. Yeah. Oh man, well, my parents are calling me. Like my dad literally called me um, because you know the murder rate's very high right now, and just the violent crime in New York City is very, very high right now, um, and particularly in Brooklyn, but not where I live. Um, and so, but my dad's calling. Is everything okay, Tony? Do you need to come down? I was like, and my dad was born and raised in the Bronx in the fifties, sixties, into the seventies, like. Like yes, it's fine, Dad. Calm down. <laughs> it's like Brooklyn's very, very big. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, they're just checking to see if you're alive. Mm. Yep, <laughs> then hear exactly. back from my son. Is he still alive? Someone murder yep. him. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, in this September, actually, we have uh, our three-week event, the Water Technology Innovation Exchange, coming up. And uh, for this, leading up to this event, uh, the editors, so that's Tony, Joanna Wright, Max Bowie, and myself, we have been giving some previews to uh, some of the topics that we're going to be discussing. And uh, earlier this week, we we recorded a video. So, Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we talked about? Sure. And so, you know, we're going to play for everybody else, but um, it's some of the topics that we've, that we've hit on a little bit here with Wei Shan and I, but you're going to get two new voices with Joanna and Max. Um, Max is going to talk about, you know, how firms are trying to use their office. We've obviously had this conversation. Max, uh, gives some really interesting, unique insights. Dude's been working in the space for 20 years. 
So, and he spoke with just a ton of people for his story. So it'll be fun having him on. Um, Joanna, she's been writing a lot about ESG, both from a regulatory perspective in Europe, as well as uh, doing case studies with UBS, with Lazard Asset Management, um, a couple smaller hedge funds in Europe and in Asia. Um, so she's going to talk a little bit about ESG and, you know, I, I kind of rip in ESG just a little bit. So we have a little bit of a debate there. And then, uh, Wei Shen obviously talks about, uh, innovation in Asia. I make it seem like Asia is, you know, a backwoods country, no innovation that we do all the innovation here in America and in London. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, Shen counters that and talks about how, uh, the coronavirus is actually going to provide tech companies in Asia with an opportunity to, you know, really kind of shine. So it was good, good, interesting conversation. Uh, so, you know, you guys wouldn't be able, most, our podcast listeners probably wouldn't be able to find this video. This video will get chopped up that we did for this marketing thing. So I wanted to have it fully out and unvarnished. So I think it'll be good. Yeah, it will be. And, and it's not, I, you let us know that sucked, you know? I mean, no big deal. <laughs> I thought it was also fun. It could be fun because it's not very often we have we have four of us, you know, talking on the podcast. So well, that means that I would have to start waking up at nine o'clock if we nine a.m. or you know having to call at nine a.m. I'm like, nah, man, that's that's just too early for me. So oh, that's another thing though. Then that would mean that both of us would have to have scripts all the time because yeah, yeah, you don't You're work better- it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this this works, you know. Our our dynamics works, yeah, work. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, we'll be back next week. Um, I think we might have a guest on, but uh, we'll we'll let you guys we might know. Might save some of the guests. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. we might save some of the guests for September, but we'll see. But we have a lot because of the innovation exchange. We're gonna actually have a lot of uh, guests, a lot of end user guests um, coming up. Um, so there there is a lot of stuff. It's not just always gonna be us talking. Uh, so you can all. Uh, breathe a sigh of relief, uh, but you know, hopefully, <laughs> some of the banter. <laughs> Till next week. Have a good week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second preview show for the Waters Technology Innovation Exchange. I'm Anthony Malaki, and the editor of Waters Technology, coming to you from my uh, flag room here in Brooklyn, in the U.S. of A. Uh, I'm joined by Wei Shen Wang, who is in Hong Kong, where it's after 10 p.m. So we'll see how coherent she is. Uh, Shen, how you doing? Uh, 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 hi <laughs> i'm doing well exactly. thanks. <laughs> uh we also have joe wright who is uh one of who's in one of london's suburbs i'm assuming that probably has some bucolic sounding name uh joe how you doing i'm good uh much much less excuse for being incoherent there you go exactly just the afternoon your time and then, of course, there's Max Bowie, who's in a borough over from me in Queens, of which I have nothing nice to say anything about. Uh, Max, how you doing? I'm all right. Coming to you live from my kids' room. There you go. Very nice. Uh, you know, it's the pandemic. Uh, you know, every, this is what it's going to be. So, you know, this vi- the last video that we did is, and this video is meant to give you a taste of what next month innovation exchange will be like uh, it's going to be held virtually online the first set of days september 9th through the 11th we'll look at technology and transformation the second uh, set of days the 14th, september 14th through the 16th will focus in on issues pertaining to data and the third set of days september 18th to the 22nd will delve into business strategy and leadership during the pandemic uh, the four of us will be moderating uh, some of these panels uh, that d- during the course of those three weeks and so 
this is kind of just give you a, a slice of some of the things I'll be talking about. Uh, let me start off with my neighbor, Max. Uh, Max, a little while back, you wrote a story titled uh, Space Exploration. How will banks handle unwanted, costly real estate post-COVID? Um, you wrote this way back in May, June, something, I think, like that. Um, and, you know, since then, this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue that people are writing about. But you took an interesting angle. Rather than saying banks are going to just um, – cut down their office space footprint. You talked about turning those spaces into something of a we work for fintech startups. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that you're hearing? Well, one of the cha- thanks, Tony. One of the challenges that these firms are going to be facing is what do you do with that space? Um, my specialist area of market data has traditionally been the third largest single expense that these financial firms face behind staff costs, and the literal bricks and mortar costs, whether, you know, their leases or the buildings that they own. Um, and you can't get out of those very quickly. You know, if we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year just spent on market data and who knows how much more spent on staff, you know, the amount they're spending on this space runs into enormous amounts of money. So the question is, when that space is empty and you are still paying for it, how do you get space back up with the employees you had there before even if everybody wanted to return to work and a lot of people are still nervous about doing that and so you know the firms so far from what i hear are being very supportive in expanding their work from home plans and supporting staff who don't feel like going back into an office environment yet but you know even if you can get people back into the office setting up Social distancing policies and procedures means that you have, I mean, you have a whole bunch of challenges, like literally, how do you get people up to the 22nd floor in an elevator that's five feet by five feet when you're supposed to be six feet apart? But the other thing is, once you get onto that office floor, you know, what do you do? If, if you do implement social distancing within an office, you're looking at removing, you know, one third to half of the desk space that you have there. So you're not going to be able to fill it back up with employees. Do you just suffer the fact that the cost per desk then incrementally goes up by, you know, one, one third to, to 50%? Or do you find another way to offset that? So what I was looking at, uh, and which, you know, firms are, some firms are looking at, some are not looking at, some are kind of taking a wait and see approach because frankly, you know, still who knows what's going to happen and when. Um, So what some people are looking at is how can we monetize big swaths of empty space? Like if you if you have a trading floor that is no longer practical to have people working at in the way that they were, you know, can you clear out some of that space? Can you some of your empty offices and say, um, let's have someone else come in here? Uh, And what I was thinking and which some some other people out there are also thinking to to some degree is can you create almost like a startup working environment where what you're doing is you're identifying the vendors and suppliers who might be critical to your business into a professional space where you can say you have access to the best infrastructure that investment bank money can buy. You have access on the same floor to a ready customer base willing to give you feedback 
and help steer your product and service. Um, and just from a practical point of view, you know, the, the, the bank or the asset manager has service and support right within their own four walls. Um, mm-hmm. so there are, there are benefits to being able to do that. There are challenges along with it as well. But what you're essentially doing is creating like a, as, as you said, I, I kind of dubbed it a we work for fintechs, but mm-hmm. you're essentially building your own incubator within your own four walls. And, uh, firms have done this so far, but usually in kind of third party spaces, the incubation aspect of it has been, you know, let's, let's get some companies together, have them share office space and so on. Here, the idea would be that, yeah, you do that, but it's, it's your own office space. So you use it. You can monetize it, and by using it, what you're essentially doing is investing in those companies where you have uh, a vested interest in their success. Okay, very good. And you know that that kind of discussion that will happen more than likely on the third uh, set of days, the third week, uh, the management and strategy piece. Um, the second set of days will look at uh, data. Uh, Joe, you've been writing a lot about ESG, both from a regulatory perspective in Europe, as well as profiling uh, UBS Asset Management, um, the concentrated alpha team. Um, you've written stories about HSBC and how, La- and how Lazar, DWS Group, um, East Capital are using ESG uh, data sets in their investment processes. What are maybe some of the interesting things that you're seeing in that space since it's such a, a widely talked about space? It's a, it's an area that both the buy side and the sell side are trying to get their footing in. You're on mute. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> I do suck. I'm sorry. That was classic rookie era. There you go. Um, I'll start again as if I hadn't done that. Um, so, yeah, Tony, I know that you're uh, for you. ESG is a bit of a four letter word. Uh, you're a bit skeptical of it and you know, with, with good reason. I think that what I find quite interesting is that like, as far as I can tell, inflows into ESG funds, you know, they're still relatively trivial, but there's no doubt that investors and investment firms are increasingly interested in ESG, um, increasingly invested in ESG, both literally and in the sense that they're just hungry for information about it. And as you mentioned, regulators are definitely taking an interest, especially in the EU, which wants to lead in this space to a lesser degree in Asia Pacific. Um, but the EU is certainly ahead with like disclosure rules, the EU taxonomy and all that coming on. So you can't really ignore ESG. Um, I think for a while now, investment firms have been trying in various ways to integrate ESG considerations into investment processes, whether that's in kind of specifically sustainable funds or whether it's just, you know, kind of normal investment funds that have a kind of ESG slant or, or weightings or, or whatever. Um, and the refrain you hear a lot from these data consumers is that the ESG ratings they buy from the likes of Sustainalytics and MSCI and some of the others, there's been a lot of consolidation in that space lately, and I struggle to keep everyone straight. Um, but these are, you know, what they're saying is that these are useful starting points, but they're not really meaningfully correlated. Uh, and this is because all these ratings providers have their own means of coming up with these ratings, and often these methods are proprietary and opaque. Um, I, I was reading some really interesting research from the MIT Sloan School, which uh, updated – it did the research in 2019, but updated it again earlier this year um, – and it found that five of the main ratings providers agree with each other about 60% of the time. If you're looking at like the credit ratings agencies like Moody's and Fitch and so on, that's more like 99%. So I thought that was a really interesting stat. Um, but you can see how it would be pretty hard to find a clear signal there. 
Um, and so a lot of investment and asset managers have taken their own road to finding signals, often with some kind of proprietary rating of their own, some kind of um, really thought through process for integration. And as you mentioned, the, the names that I've spoken to over the past year have included UBS Asset Management, Lazard Asset Management, DWS, East Capital. Um, and they're all handling this in very different ways, but in a way, it's almost kind of the same way. Um, yeah. And what that is, is they're all looking inward. They're all kind of developing their own proprietary data sets and they're all kind of looking to quant strategies and, and the like. Um, so as you also mentioned, most recently, I spoke to the global concentrated alpha team in UBS Asset Management, which is quite a small team. I think there are only three of them and they're bottom up stock pickers and they manage a few long short equities funds. Specifically, uh, the one I was speaking to them about was called the European Opportunity Unconstrained. Um, so UBS as a group decided to do US, uh, sorry, ESG integration some years ago. So it's not just in the asset management division. They, they kind of envisaged it across the whole group. But um, this has helped this small equities team within the greater group because um, they've been able to draw on this team of analysts. So what they do is they take third party ratings from two providers, um, MSDI and Sustainalytics, and then they take their own scores that UBS developed. Um, and then they can come up with these ratings, but then they can also go to these eight really specialized analysts who can dig into what the scores say. Um, and what I also thought was interesting is that they don't just stop there sometimes. They don't just use this data for stock picking, but they can also use it for further engagement with any companies that maybe they want to have in their portfolio, but they might be falling down, not on ESG itself, but just in their reporting of it, which can be an issue with kind of young companies. They don't really know how to disclose ESG properly. So this team actually, through their kind of stewardship, either the, the stewardship angle of this this um, sustainable investing hub that they have it within UBS, they can actually go to these companies and say, we can help you get better at disclosures and, you know, that will help them in the long run. So, um, yeah, I thought that was interesting in the reporting that I've been doing on that issue. Um, I think going forward, what will be interesting is to see how ESG shakes out, you know, because of COVID um, and will it prompt a rethink of sustainability frameworks as the concept of materiality evolves. Fair enough. And I, I mean, you know, fair enough that I, I would say that ESG, I, I like the idea of ESG and I'm all about sustainability. And I think it's a great way uh, for, you know, it's going to be a market of the future where jobs are going to be. I think that a lot of banks, a lot of uh, asset managers specifically are using ESG as a marketing tool the same way that, you know, everybody was touting their blockchain projects back in 2016 and 17. But we'll see where it goes from there. Um and Shen, you'll wrap things up for us. Uh, when it comes specifically to capital markets technology, um, and so the first day is going to focus on, you know, kind of trading tools and trading technology. Um, us Westerners sometimes take the view that uh, Asia lags the U.S. and Europe when it comes to innovation. Essentially, the trading platforms, uh, the, 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 you know, and the, the, the trading systems are created um, over here and then they're rolled out uh, throughout Asia throughout their offices in Asia. Uh, do you agree with me on this, or am I being a hegemonic American? <laughs> well, in, in some ways, I think you are right. But in other ways, particularly, maybe you're right in terms of like how, for example, regulation is rolled out. You know, Asia always lags in that in that sense, uh, mainly because the market is so fragmented here. Asia is not just Asia. There are so many different countries here, you know, um, very different to like how America is or North America is. <laughs> so I, 
I think, um, you know, in line, uh, let's talk about innovation in Asia, and which is very well in line with our innovation exchange happening in September. You know, and as the as the COVID situation uh, we've seen, you know, it has forced banks, asset managers, many out, other firms outside of our area, which is the capital markets, you know, to have most if not all their staff working remotely, they've had to obviously become a lot more nimble. And that means, uh, you know, getting operations up and running as normal, even with staff working from home, as well as, you know, when they're looking to deploy solutions. And we've, uh, we at the Technology have written a lot about how some of them have been going on their journeys of doing that and, you know, looking at automating some of their workflows. So particularly because uh, the COVID situation had really kind of started off here first, um, you know, I, I think the the banks, even though they are not um, uh, maybe maybe they're local and regional, but also the global banks that are here, so the Senate Chartered, the uh, HSBCs, Deutsche Bank, and so forth. You know, they've had to, you know, uh, they were really at the forefront of having to put their workforce, you know, um, at home pretty much. So they kind of COVID really pushed them to take that digital leap. So what I've seen and heard is this automation process has more often than not involved some sort of chatbot and that, that facilitates uh, communication and workflows, whether used for internal teams or with third parties. And traditionally, chatbots are, uh, you know, have been the domain of retail banking. Um, as uh, all of us know, you, I mean, we would have definitely been in contact with a chatbot one way or another when we're doing our banking, right? Checking account balances or, I, I don't know, requesting for an installment plan on our credit card balances, which probably, you know, in this time has racked up quite a bit. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. <laughs> so these chatbots, I, I find they're now foraying into the corporate and wholesale part of the bank. And I think Asia is really leading here. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it could be that it's, a, that it's the global banks, Asia-based, for example, like uh, what We've seen recently uh, Deutsche Bank and BNY Mellon, they developed an API to deal with restricted currencies in Korea specifically, or South Korea specifically, and these, this solution actually uses their respective chatbots, which is a nicely named uh, uh, Debbie and Selena, and they integrated that on, the, on Symphony's platform. So mm-hmm. part of the reasons why chatbots are more advanced now is thanks to improvements in natural language processing and machine learning. And uh, one of the huge advancements in that space is thanks to transform models, which uh, Joe here has written an excellent feature, you know, explaining what that is all about. And and uh, taking cue from that, it's quite it's been really interesting to see that the top three companies on the uh, general language understanding evaluation or GLUE uh, benchmark, which basically evaluates natural language understanding systems, are all Asia based or technically they're actually all China based. So there's Alibaba, which is currently ranked number one, followed by Ping'an, and then Baidu. Uh, you know, and some of these projects are leading off BERT, which is Google's uh, bi-directional encoder representations from Transformers. So, for example, uh, you know, Ping'an has a core framework called uh, OmniCinetic that was used to build its COVID-19 smart audio robot. And the system basically has the capacity to allow up to 3,000 AI robots working at the same time, and each bot handles maybe like 500 uh, automated call screenings a day. So these, uh, for this example specifically, they were used to screen suspected cases, you know, um, by gathering information on symptoms and body temperatures of residents. Uh, it's 
but the thing is, this framework is also used in Pingan's other businesses for investment research and risk management. And uh, very recently, also Deutsche Bank in China developed a bot. You know, it's new. Um, it called it its new digital employee. Its name is Blue Bot Yi, named after well, Yi named after the founder. Um, sorry, the developer. So, uh, and it's currently used in its corporate banking division in China. So it handles it. It has a separate email address and everything, just like a normal employee, and handles customized transaction reports and cash pooling reports, and it processes direct client inquiries. From what I understand, this bot can easily be integrated with APIs and used in other areas in the bank like KYC and trade finance. So it's even though um, it may seem like uh, perhaps it's the Western. Western banks that are doing all the work, which, well, technically, maybe they are, but um, they're more vocal about it. It is still their Asia-based, um, or, sorry, not their Asia-based, their, their Asia, um, yeah, the Asia-based colleagues that are actually doing the, the bulk of the work before it is, and then deploying it here in the region, before deploying it to its other uh, offices worldwide. So I think that in that sense, Asia Asia is leading the the innovation, uh, yeah, out here. So you're telling me that I'm just being a stubborn American. I got it. No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in a nutshell, yes. All right. So, Max, uh, for your story, um, you know, Luke wrote a story recently about, you know, just generally talking about banks decreasing their footprint. And, you know, from just a conversation you had, because there's going to eventually be a vaccine for this. We, you have to imagine. Um, yes, there could be future pandemics and everything like that. But there, if you're a bank and you know, just unwinding from your footprint, you know, that's got to be difficult as it is. So, and it, it's it almost feels a bit knee jerk reaction just to say that they're going to just reduce their their the size of their footprint because at the end of the day. Finance has always been one of those where they want you in the office. You know, it's not like, you know, you know, Silicon Valley and stuff like that. You know, everybody even like when you go into the office, you kind of go into your unique little cubbyhole and whatever it is like, you know, going into like Google's offices or something like that. Facebook banking finance. It's still very much you sit at your desk and we work together as a team. I yell things out to you, you yell things out to me. It would take a, a complete philosophical change for Wall Street to change that thinking. So it would seem to me that trying to do different things with office space is the more logical thing rather than just being like, yeah, no, we're going to just decrease our footprint by 30 percent, you know, arbitrarily. What do you think about that? I I think it would require a rethink, not just um, not just on the bank's level, but uh, also at, at the regulatory level, because up until now, what the regulated entity is the firm you work for and the place where you work. And one of the challenges that people faced when we began this whole period of working from home was, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, this meets our obligations from a regulatory and a compliance perspective? Uh, you know, not just can people work from a separate location? Can they work from their homes? But then how do they go about doing that? What types of technology can we employ to make sure that they are at least compliant with our own uh, risk rules, with any uh, other client obligations that we have to meet? 
Um, you know, these are all things that people have had to consider over the last six months. Um, and I think you're right that to imagine that this is going to continue for the long term in exactly the same manner is probably not the the route you want to go down. Um, There might be some firms who say, you know what, we can do this. We've seen that we can do this. You know, retail banks can be can be online only and they don't need a storefront anymore. They still need the corporate offices. They still need data centers and everything else. But there's no reason why that can't evolve into a more distributed model if you have a firm who is, you know, both, first of all, you know, in a position to make it happen, who is agile enough, uh, and B, who has that kind of mindset and is willing to think in a different manner. Because if, if one of these firms crunches the numbers and says, look, actually, if we do this, we can lower our costs, we can increase productivity, we can use this software that we've been using to kind of shift workflows around the world and to make sure that everyone's compliant and we can do it cheaper and better than we do in a big corporate office. And that's going to be our strategy, not just for the next six months, 18 months, but for the next 18 years, then yeah, that could work. But you're absolutely right. There's a lot of firms who are tied into either long-term expensive leases uh, where they might want to try and squeeze some of that and re- renegotiate it down a little bit. But but more often than not, you know, th- these firms own their space. When when you see a building, when, when you talk about like, the, you know, a building that has a bank's name emblazoned all over it, that's because they, they own a significant chunk of that space. And getting out of that is even harder because what do you do? Do you put it on the market and where do you go after that? Um one of the beauties about the idea of doing this kind of we work for fintechs option is that it fills the space, but those companies are always going through some kind of uh, some kind of churn, shall we say? They're you know they're going through growth spurts, so they might be in your office for one year, two years. Uh, as they get bigger, they may need a totally different space. They need may need totally different resources. They may need more space. Or, or less space. They might get acquired. They might do an IPO, in which case they need a completely separate and independent space. So it gives you the flexibility because, you know, those companies are going to be potentially going to be coming and going and you can adapt uh, as the climate changes. So this year, you know, we can do that. Next year, we can do something. We can increase it or decrease it. And the year after that, well, you know, maybe there's a vaccine. It's 100 percent effective. Everyone's back in the office. We don't need to do that anymore. Maybe we we change the way that we run that kind of incubator strategy. And I think I think that there's also, you know, it. It's easy to talk about and say, yeah, we're going to have everybody work, work remotely. But, uh, Shen and I talked about this last week and the guys feel free to, you know, if you want to jump in or anything like that. And also, Joe, if you have people walking around the background now, feel free to tell them that this isn't as professional anymore. We're, we're good, uh, if they want uh, to, to just go around. Um, but it's easy enough to say, yeah, we're going to have more and more people working remotely, but there are real right now. Everybody's okay with the idea of working remotely being. Um, productive because we're in a pandemic. You got to be able to show that you're doing your job because you don't want to be the first one to be fired, basically. Um, and so everybody's on board with the same idea. But working remotely, what happens when, all right, everything is back to normal. People are back at their offices. We are in that next day stage. You're going to have, they're going to, 
companies are going to still want people in the office. Now, how do you decide who's in the office? And you open yourself up, I think, to – there are some HR concerns here because I was saying to Shen, it's like let's say I want to work uh, remotely from North Carolina. She wants to work remotely from Malaysia. They tell me I'm allowed to. I'm a white man. They tell her, no, sorry, you're you're integral. You have to stay uh, in Hong Kong. Yeah, because my team can, is in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, your team's in Hong Kong. Yeah, but well, my team's in the U.S., right? You know, it's. I don't have a team in Hong Kong. That's what oh, I meant. Oh no, yeah, I got you. I got you. Uh, I, I, I thought you were being snarky. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> um, and uh, but yeah, so I think there are just questions that there. It's it's not as simple as yeah, everybody's just going to work remotely and it's going to be fine. So I think that uh, banks are going to have to. It's it's not just they can't just be thinking. All right, let's just you know with a with an axe chop this off. There has to be something I think that's a, a more surgical strategy than just wholesale just cut. Um, all right. Um, there there is, but also yeah. many of these many of these firms have actually been doing this to a degree for a while. You'd be surprised. I mean, maybe when you talk to people, you hear this as well. But I talk to all kinds of people, especially on the kind of the the market data, the operations side, uh, things where. Because you don't have a huge data center within your building anymore, because most of that is remote, their jobs can also be remote. And so there's a lot of people I speak to who have been, you know, in the office two, three days a week, and the rest of the time is kind of rotationally working from home or working from remote sites. And so that they they have this strategy implemented to a degree already, and if they chose to take it further beyond however long this pandemic lasts, um, you know, it, it might be easier than we think. One of the things that you have to do, though, is that you have to basically create profiles in the same way that a data manager would create a user profile for each data service that they subscribe to to make sure that, you know, OK, you are entitled to receive this. You don't get that based on your role. You know, this, you'd have to basically do the same thing and say these are the roles, regardless of who and where. These are the roles that can be performed remotely, should the person want to, or should our business needs dictate. And these are the roles where you either have to be in the office or you have to be in some kind of rotation about being in an office. And if you think, if you think about, you know, the way that a lot of these businesses and the way that we were, the way Wei Shen was just talking about, you know, being, being out there in Hong Kong, um, you know, when you're not in, the head office, you are to a degree already working remotely, whether you're in an, whether you're in a satellite office or whether you're one person sitting in their home office, you know, to a large degree, you're already doing that. And a lot of firms are. Well, let me tell you, especially back in the, and you know this well, but like back in the day of old school incisive media, being in the U.S., you felt like you were a colony to, you know, the, the mothership that's in London. When you were working here in the U.S., it was like you're just, Every now and again, they would check in on you to see what was going on. Uh, but, you know, obviously that's changed a lot as, as we've kind of tried to grow our offices out here in the U.S. and in Asia. But, uh, that there's, that's certainly true. Um, all right. Joe, let's talk a little bit, uh, more about ESG because again, as I was saying before, I think that with ESG, it, I, I am, you know, I'm ho, I, I, I'm totally for the idea of ESG for sustainability, for conservation. 
Um, I think that this is where the job market of the future is, that there's going to be a lot of jobs to be created out there uh, that require human workforce as opposed to um, simply just automation and technology. The feeling that I get is, especially on the buy side now, is a lot of firms are just slapping on ESG in their uh, prospectus, trying to say that, yeah, we're we're big into this, but meanwhile, they have a team of one or two people that their focus is ESG. They'll get the most play. They'll get in front of the media. But at the end of the day, it's still that equities, you know, alpha trading team that's going to get, you know, all the investment, that's going to get all the ba- bonuses, all the salary, everything like that. And ESG is just being, you know, lipstick on the pig to put it, uh, I guess, as uh, one saying. Um, you know, do you think I'm far off on that or? I guess it depends on the question you're asking. Um, if you're so asking, ask question. thanks. <laughs> I, I'm on mute this time. Fortunately, yes, I am. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're asking if there's like greenwashing and if they're not really giving you, um, you know, if they're if they're just marketing financial products that don't have any kind of real. Um, you know, sustainability component. I think that's kind of a, the question that's beyond the scope of what is technology to answer. You know, you'd have to. Yeah. No, no, I, I think- so let me let me change the topic because yes, there's there's certainly green from a corporate perspective. I, I yeah. I want to say I know the bank's name, but um, I I can't. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, so I won't say the bank's name. But essentially, they or no, it was. I'm 99 percent sure is a data a tech a big technology a data a big data vendor. And they said that we're going to increase our board members, uh, uh, females on our board by something like, it was 20% or something like that. And it was like, and they put out this big headline, stuff like that. When you read the press release, it would require them to hire one extra woman onto the board. (laughs) So it's like, wow, you hired one extra woman onto the board, which great. That is a progression, but they put out a big press release. And that's what I look at as being greenwashing. Fair enough. What I'm saying is, is right now the trading firms themselves, the buy side trading firms are trying to make themselves sound better, look better by, um, saying that we have this big ESG, that, that ESG is very important to our investment processes. And certainly at UBS asset management, at Lazard, they can show it. They can really prove it that that is something they care about, but. Like, cause I remember just talking with a couple, uh, uh, two years ago with, they were very, very small specialist ESG hedge funds. That was, that was their whole game. They didn't have anything outside of sustainability. And they like laugh, like when they would talk about all these big asset managers that are like, yeah, we care about ESG. And it's like, they don't give a shit. They just, they're just trying to, they have a little team. They're playing around with it, but they're not getting the investment that the other trading teams are getting. Yeah, I think that's I th- I think that's fair and it will it will show in the performance of the funds um in the long run. And you know, why I mean everyone should care about the environment, yes, but 
do you you know you, no one really cares about it. <laughs> i'm i'm phrasing this completely poorly um <laughs> i mean at the end of the day you have a responsibility to the people that you're managing funds for right like that that's that's what you care about and um investment firms will care about ESG to the extent that it performs and that's that's as it should be that's how it works um so i think you know if you just have a look at the at the funds that are ESG per se um specifically sustainable funds you know they they're not a new thing they the the portfolio manager of global concentrated alpha is max andel he has been managing funds at ubs for 20 years and the first one he he began at the at ubs is you know 20 odd years old now mm. um it's a, it was a it was a fund that i think I could be I could get this wrong so apologies to him if I do but I as far as I recall it was um it was investing in kind of green technologies like you know windmills and that kind of thing um and you know it did very well and it still exists um the one that I spoke to them about global concentrated alpha has performed very well I don't have the um I don't have the figures in front of me but it was you know it 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 came through coronavirus okay mm-hmm. um uh I think it outperformed the MSCI Europe index by 15.5%. I think that was the the figure. Again, apologies to Max if I got that wrong. Um but yeah, I think I don't think ESG is a new thing. I think the marketing around it is new and yes, there is a lot of spin and a lot of marketing, but in the end it will be judged by the performance of these funds. And, and um yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I'm sorry, just to cut you off a little bit, but the and so then that because the the reason why that becomes a bit of an issue is it does create a bit of a snake oil sale of uh, 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 an environment that's right for a snake oil salesman. I'm going to come in with my ESG products and say, this is all you're going to need. Don't worry about anything else. And then, so, you know, funds are like, yeah, no, we are now using XYZ vendor. But as you were saying that everybody's just got their own different metrics and it just becomes you know how do you really balance that out and so right now i think that on the vendor side the data provider side they see a hot market to really go to smaller mid-sized hedge funds say hey listen i got the product you need you don't even have to go and hire a bunch of people just use our metrics here and the hedge fund wanting to present itself to its investors as being esg savvy say oh yes we now have this vendor has that that's kind of where i i see the problem the issue and yeah that will all shake itself out after some time because as you say issues been people been investing in this thing since the 70s uh is when the first real papers around this were starting 60s into the 70s is when the first papers were being written about this um but now it's just it's it's like the blockchain environment you know and it's it's just a hot topic how many headlines do you see with ESG in the headline in the in on on our website on our own website and in press releases so that's kind of why I, I I completely agree with you now that I understand your question thank you <laughs> it was it, it takes me a while to get there it's ten o'clock in the morning you know I'm a nighttime person not a daytime person. No, and I mean I've I've heard the same complaint from data end users um at you know at at asset management firms obviously they're not going to cop to being one of those firms but I think this is why most firms who are doing ESG integration and are doing it properly are not relying on the data vendors and you know I mean yeah there's a lot of complaint that these ratings are uncorrelated but that doesn't necessarily have to be a problem um I mean if you've got obviously for for some for some strategies this doesn't apply but I mean 
if you can find a signal easily, let's say MSCI Sustainalytics and the other vendor that you're using all agree on one thing, you're not the only one who can see that. You know, in, in the end, like being able to see signal that other people cannot see is an edge. Um, and being able to see the same signal that everyone else can see, I mean, what's the point of that in some ways? Um, so I think like if you're going to do ESG, you got to do it properly and that according to the people that I have spoken to, it means looking inwards, developing proprietary data sets, looking to quant strategies, looking to quantumental, all that kind of, all that kind of fun. And obviously that takes resources, but you know, I've spoken to quite small firms who are managing very well. Um, and that's just because they took the time and they took the effort and they took advantage of training um, from trade bodies and all that kind of thing. And I feel like uh, the thing about blockchain is blockchain was like a hammer looking for a nail. And everyone yeah. was like, yeah, this is cool technology. But how do we actually go about applying it? Whereas with ESG, there is a movement among investors. There is demand. And so when we talk about the, the, the asset managers and the banks responding and increasing their marketing, they're doing that because they know there are people out there who want it. And that if they don't do that, basically, they're going to lose out to the other guys who can make themselves look more savvy. And the important thing is meeting that demand and being able to present your offering in such a way where people can get the satisfaction of knowing, you know, I'm, I'm meeting my own personal goals in terms of responsible investing. I'm putting my money to work for good, mm-hmm. but I'm actually making more money. Like you, you put me in an ESG fund and it makes 1%. What am I going to do at the end of the year? I'm going to take my money out and put it back into arms manufacture. It's, you know, <laughs> if you give me an ESG fund that gets close, like, you don't have to give me a Tesla. You can give me a Prius, and as long as I can just poodle along at like 45 miles an hour, but I get 2,000 miles to the gallon, then I'm going to be happy. Yeah. I, I think that, a lot of the problem is that um, you know we're seeing ESG funds that do have arms manufacturers in them. You know, that, that's more what is concerning people is that. Hey, the arms, arms manufacturers are, are worried about the, you know, they worry about the conservation, how their, their carbon footprint, but yeah, they're exactly. still producing arms. Exactly. You know? okay. <laughs> exactly. For and every is, city know, we like, destroy, we plant thousand trees. <laughs> from, a, from an S perspective, that's awful. From a G perspective, they might be great. I mean, if you look at like, um, I heard this anecdote from someone who does a lot of work in the in the sort of old USSR. What, what do you you know the, that that block? Um, and they said you know a lot of the countries there have very good governance um, statistics because they have a lot of women on their boards. But what you don't realize is that the one woman on this board is also on the board of all the other companies because she uh, has a family member in the party. You know so. Is that good governance? You know, that, that takes a big deep dive into the data. And that's, I think, that that's the big challenge. Yeah. All right. And then the other topic that we hit on, uh, Shen. And so Shen and I, we, we always talk on the podcast, so people are used to us. But um, one thing that I thought that was interesting that you bring up, and maybe I'm making a leap here, but if remote working becomes more and more popular, and let's say that, you know, that this is going to be a longer trend as opposed to a solution to a problem that's right now, that this is something that's going to be there. The technologies, as you mentioned, that have been uh, advanced on the retail banking side are coming through Asia. The chatbot technology, you know, the NL, the natural language understanding 
is heavily Asia based. So maybe this is actually going to be a big opportunity for Asia, for those Asia based, um, technology companies and then the banks themselves. Cause that's the other thing. It's always so confusing to talk about Asia because there's so much of, we're kind of retail, we're in finance, but we also have this technology arm. And it, it's just, it, it's got a different feel than, than your more traditional, um, US and, and, uh, London based companies, I guess. But, what I'm trying to say is, in a roundabout way, is that this might be an opportunity for those kind of companies that have made a major footprint in the retail banking space to figure out new ways to extend those technologies to capital markets trading firms, which in the past might have been like, I don't need a chatbot. This isn't, you know, I, I don't care about this kind of stuff. They might be more open ears now um, to those kind of technologies. And understanding how it can help a trading desk as opposed to helping my mortgage team out. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And that's, I think that is the way that it's, it's going to be. Um, <clears throat> how, uh, like, as you said, it's, it's quite hard to, I guess, discern what an uh, Asia based bank is because a lot, like, for example, take Pingan for, uh, let's take Pingan for example. So isn't, it's, typically known as an insurance company but they also have a technology arm they have a they have an asset management arm they have a uh, if i'm not mistaken the banking arm as well if you look at their if you look at their um organizational chart it's just like column after column after column and they were they were helping like your story they were helping the government to track you know who had coronavirus to uh for what contact tracing which, yeah. you know, you wouldn't think of a bank being a government, you know, helping out the government, you know, kind of tracking. And I'm not, I'm not even saying this in like, you know, like some creepy way, like they were actually doing a service uh, that was helping to keep track and to lessen the spread of coronavirus. You wouldn't think of a JP Morgan teaming up with, you know, the U.S. government, uh, RBS teaming up in, in with the U.K. government to help do something like that. But they have the technology that they can do that, you know, so that's where Asia, I think firms can some like, uh, uh, who are the, the big, um, is it Baidu? Am I saying it correctly? Like, Alibaba. Alibaba, like Alibaba, they're, they're such a complex firm <laughs> yeah. that it's, I, I can't fully get my head around them, you know? So, but maybe this is, I don't. I don't even know where I'm going with that. To be honest with you, it's ten o'clock in the morning. I'm, my mind's still not working right. I don't but. know. It's, it's ten p.m. at night or ten p.m. Yeah, exactly. with eleven. But uh, yeah. so we're 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 both at each other's words now. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, eleven. <laughs> usually when we do this, it's eleven p.m. my time, eleven a.m. your time. But yeah, I guess if this is if this could be an opportunity uh, for companies out there to exp- if they wanted to, because the idea of remote never would have was never like we had the the bring your own device you know phase we had you know having trading technologies being put up into the cloud that would technically allow for more remote working but the world of wall street and the street in the uk was always you're in your office you sit in your office um if this is a real change and maybe there are opportunities for Companies that were just focused on retail banking, on you know your mortgage, on your insurance stuff, to use those technologies to help specifically traders to do their job better. Yeah, uh, possibly. And that, I, the thing is, 
I, particularly with banks in China, right? They have such a huge market already. So uh, if they, uh, I mean, the, the footprint that they have is just so massive. Um, yeah. It's just whether or not they want to take more of the pie that's outside their own pie. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. So, Absolutely. but I think I think that that is changing quite a bit. So, so like for example, let's say uh, one aspect of Alibaba, there's Alibaba Cloud, right? Um, and they are reaching out to quite a few like different enterprises and some uh, capital markets firms out here too. So it it's they kind of already bleeding into into uh, I know our area of coverage quite a bit. It's just a, it's going to take a, a matter of, of time, I guess. Uh, and and with anything, I think, um, and I think it's it's a global global thing. Like for example, innovation always happens in the retail space because it's just an easier market to target. There's the 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 requirements are a lot simpler, I guess. Uh, you know, to like, oh, I want to put out a chatbot uh, just to talk to potential, um, you know, uh, people who want to get bank accounts. Okay, that's done. But you know, how do you then um, uh, replicate replicate that? <laughs> you know, when it comes to let's say, uh, okay, I want a chatbot that uh, you know um, for my traders. Uh, I want them to. I, I want the chatbot to be uh, to understand uh, my chatbot, and I guess another bot would have to be on top of that. But anyway, uh, you know, I want to, I want to be able to, I want it to understand, oh, this is what I mean by, oh, how much to buy and at what price. Uh, this is the. Strike and X, all, all those kind of financial terms that are very, very specific to a trading desk that they have definitional names that in a, in a regular environment, but they mean completely different things when you're using it on a trading desk. Yes. So this is why even if you use a transformer model like Google's BERT, you still need uh, another uh, – you need it to go – you need another model to go with it to yeah. be able to understand financial nuances, which uh, in, in, in Joe's excellent feature she pointed out. And, um, you know, since, since – No, but since that feature, it's like everybody – everyone who I speak to who has – who talks anything about like NLP or natural language understanding, I'm like – are you using Bert? They're like, yeah. How'd you know? I'm like, okay, cool. cool I read Joanna's <laughs> excellent piece on it. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to say here. I'm just blushing. Yeah, no, it's we'll, a we'll it's a nice it. it's a nice change from the like shower of abuse that I usually <laughs> receive from you guys. Oh yeah. By the way, I'm leaving the you suck Joe. I'm leaving that piece in there for uh, the podcast <laughs> version. Just so you know. That's fine. That's fine. We're all real right. on this podcast. Exactly. Keep it real. Um, all right. Uh, well, listen, this was uh, fun and different, you know, for a podcast member. Since again, the 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 reason why we're doing this is just because. The marketing thing, they're going to chop that up. But I thought that you guys actually did. I thought you, this time you guys sounded good and coherent as opposed to the first time we did this when it was like, oh, God, what what are they even saying? So good job, guys, I guess, uh, for coming prepared and ready. Um, all right. Well, I don't I don't know how to sign off a podcast with the four of us. But, yeah, so we'll just do a hard cut uh, until next week on the podcast. <laughs> how about this? Uh, to wrap, to bring it on. To bring it home, actually, I don't know what to say. Oh I mean, God, you're off the description. <laughs> I'm just—that's it. 
It was not in my script. So I'm, I'm sorry, you guys, but you, you guys know where my heart's at. So I think that's what counts. Yeah, Keep yeah. safe. <laughs>